Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Joseph Silk, author of the book Back to the Moon, The Next Giant Leap for Humankind. Joe, welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Right. So I am a a research scientist. I I was previously a professor, and now I um, retired from that, and I just do research. And my research consists of the field of astrophysics, trying to understand uh, the origin of things we see in the universe, anything from stars to the universe itself. Uh, and that might mean uh, such uh, typical questions as what is the nature of the dark matter that's such an enormous part of our universe around us in uh, in, in all the galaxies we see and um, throughout space, in fact? And why is the universe uh, beginning to uh, speed up its expansion? Another big question. Um, where did the universe uh, come from? How did it begin? And even uh, touching on such issues uh, as are we alone in the universe? Are there other other beings out there uh, yet to be discovered on distant planets? So those are the themes I do. My background is that I began as a, in England as a, as a student. Uh, I was at Cambridge University, and there I got interested at the end of my stay there as as a student in questions about the universe, and then I went on to go to the US, actually, to to Harvard, to learn all about astronomy, and I did my um, thesis on the formation of the galaxies. And from then on, I never really looked back, and I stayed in this field of the distant universe, really, and... uh, it was a great time, actually, because the knowledge horizon was expanding dramatically when I uh, was a student. It's fascinating to hear that uh, you know that 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 vast sweep of 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 uh, your focus in terms of your study, especially when I compare it to the book that you've written, which it seems in some ways the opposite. That you've you've taken this vast scale and you've in. You've written a book now that's about our nearest celestial neighbor. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain what it was that led you to write this book and and how it connects to what it is that you do. Well, for a long time, I I worked uh, on the Hubble Space Telescope. Maybe you you, you remember, but when it was first launched, it had a severe optics problem. And so uh, it had to be redesigned with a special corrector lens. I wasn't directly involved in that process, but it certainly caught my attention. And then a few years later, it was time to upgrade the telescope and fit it with a a new camera. And and that's something I did get involved in, um, listening to many of the discussions on advisory committees about how best to design this new new system, uh, this new lens and camera. And that worked very successfully. It led to many of the most beautiful images that we see now are taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. So that was my background. And then many years later, uh, the newest 
telescope is launched, the successor to Hubble, and I'm following that with great interest to see uh, the, the reproduction of even more beautiful images of the distant universe. It's a wonderful thing to see. So how exactly does this, all these wonderful images and all this you know, new knowledge that we're gaining uh, contribute to your call for us to return to the moon? It, it, it seems in, in one sense that all of these uh, telescopes that we're launching, all these uh, machines that we're sending out to, to, to explore, to study the universe are doing the job for us. How does... Why do, why do you think, do you then argue that we should then return to the moon? So here's the problem. Um, the telescopes you've had in the past are not very large. Uh, for example, the Hubble is a couple of meters across. The, the Webb is some six meters across. We can build bigger telescopes on the ground, uh, on high mountains. Um, right now, the largest telescope we're it's under construction in Chile, in the Atacama Mountains, is some 39 meters across, huge uh, size. The bigger the, the diameter of the telescope, the more light it collects. But we've run into a frustrating time because we're finding that all our current telescopes are producing more questions than answers. So we still haven't converged on a full understanding of the beginning of the universe, where, where it came from, what was the origin of the Big Bang. And also, you know, we, we're seeing lots of distant planets and we'd love to know if conditions are suitable for life. And so far with our current telescopes, we can only scratch the surface of this problem because we just don't have the light gathering power to look far away and deep into the universe. So the reason I got interested in the moon is that that's a place where you can build big telescopes, huge telescopes. Why? Well, the gravity is much lower. There are no winds. Nothing will blow the telescopes down. So you're not really limited by size. Uh, and what's more, there's no atmosphere on the moon. There's no ionosphere, uh, which traps radio waves. So you can build telescopes that receive ordinary light, that receive radio waves, of unprecedented size and with far superior conditions uh, for reception of distant signals. So I, I really think that our limitation so far is simply light gathering power or for radio telescopes, radio wave gathering power. And the only thing that can improve this is sheer size. And the moon gives us a, a stable platform. There are no significant moonquakes where we can build big things and therefore see much further away, much deeper into the universe. That's the goal. And as you explain, that's just one goal. It serves in a sense as a just one example as to how the moon can vastly expand our understanding of the universe. And in your book, you explain all the things that we could potentially learn or that uh or questions that the moon could potentially answer for us if we return there and basically make a presence there permanent i was wondering if you could maybe talk a bit about some of these other motivations and in particular how the by going back to the moon and studying the formation of the moon we can then learn things about our own planet well we certainly will, when we get to the moon, learn 
how to preserve a pristine environment, something we've notoriously failed to do on the earth so far. So that's one lesson for the future, I hope. But in in the meantime, um, there are many activities we will do on the moon that will uh, enlighten us greatly and satisfy many of our needs and wishes and desires that we have on the earth. To give you one simply of the most pressing needs that uh, people have now, it is as mundane as tourism. Uh, Many people wish to go to more exotic places and there's nothing more exotic you can imagine than a vacation on the moon. And this is something that will happen in 20, 30, 40 years. We will be preparing the moon for tourism. Now already the long um, queues of people signing up for trips to the moon. Uh, One would go in something like um, one of the Star X uh, spacecraft uh, and there are others being planned um, on a tour that would initially um, circle the moon several times and come back to Earth. One can buy tickets for that already. But in the longer term, there'll be landing on the moon. There'll be building resorts, hotel resorts on the moon, and there'll be endless tourism activities. Now, at the beginning, I'm sure this will be for the super rich. I mean, already a ticket for an orbit around the moon costs um, some, I think the price per ticket may be up to 50 million or something dollars. Uh, That clearly is not for the average person, but... In the long term, I feel confident there'll be mass transport to the moon. Just as happened with the aviation industry, think back to the early years of aviation transport. Tickets were incredibly high at first, not for the average person. But look how they've come down. Now, with the budget airlines and all that, anybody can really fly around the world for their holidays if they so wish. And I imagine that'll be the case, um, indicates time, for trips to the moon. So that's one of the great things. We'll have an, an amazing place to, um, which will be preserved, um, but to uh, see new things that we can't possibly imagine on the earth. That's one aspect. Uh, then there's a, a commercial aspect too. Um, one of the great drivers on the moon, which will help the earth greatly, is the fact that on the earth, we're running out of rare elements Uh, For example, um, one of the rare earths, europium, is forecast to have a thousand-year supply on the earth in in terms of being mined. Now, that may strike you as a very long time, but a thousand years is nothing compared to the ages we're talking about. We hope that the earth will uh, have a flourishing civilization for if we don't sort of mess things up. And we need a larger supply. I mean, in time, and in not so very long, actually, the as the rare earths become rarer and more difficult to extract by mining on the earth, the prices will zoom up. So it will become a very attractive activity for mining companies to explore places on the moon where there are deposits of rare earths and uh, mine them and bring them back to to earth. And I should say that there is enormously more rare earth material and other rare elements, stocks of this on the moon than on the earth. People estimate thousands of times more or more. And that's simply because the moon has been bombarded 
for billions of years by asteroids depositing uh, uh, their materials on the surface of the moon. So there are deposits of uh, many rare elements, stuff which on the Earth would possibly, when approaching the Earth, these asteroids would have burnt up in the atmosphere. And so we would not have such reserves coming to us from space. Our reserves are being deplenished. And what's more, it's even highly toxic to mine some of these materials. So interestingly enough, um, in many countries, uh, this activity is really uh, very limited because of the, of, of the dangerous nature of the, uh, of the side products of the mining. On the moon, this is no problem whatsoever because all the debris, the rare material, can be shipped into the sun and the sun will burn it all up. It's, a, it's the most important incinerator of garbage you could possibly imagine, the most effective one. And because of the low gravity on the moon, the launching spacecraft to the sun will not be difficult. So I, I, that, that, that's the sort of future whereby the Earth will benefit uh, and uh, moon, uh, the moon will provide a, a key to the future. The core of your book is constructed around your description of how when we get to the moon again that we can use it to better understand our past and we're not talking about <laughs> historical discoveries of of the apollo landings we're talking about the very uh, origin of 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 the universe and life itself i was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon what you described earlier in terms of how getting to the moon benefits our study of the of the origins of the earth the origins of the universe and, and how it is that we can do things on the moon that we can't possibly do on earth to, to understand these things the moon formed some billions of years ago not too long after the earth formed by we think the collision of a giant asteroid, actually uh, more than an asteroid, really something more or less the size of Mars, with the Earth in this huge and catastrophic impact. There was a giant splash of debris that later condensed around the Earth to form the Moon. And we can tell that something like this most likely happened from comparing the composition of the Moon with that of the Earth. That uh, it, it may be related to, to impacts that we do record on the Earth in terms of composition. Now, this is just a theory, of course, uh, but only by going to the moon and digging deep into the moon and uh, exploring its structure and how the mantle of the moon uh, was formed, we'll learn all of that, we'll be able to reconstruct its history. So we'll certainly be able to understand far more about the about how the solar system of the Earth originated by studying the moon. So it'll be a key to a deeper understanding of, 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 the, of the Earth's formation long ago. So that's one of the, the driving things for scientists. And perhaps the other uh, activity that I foresee is once we um, can explore the far side of the moon, that's an area that's completely blocked from the Earth, just as we don't see the far side from the Earth. If you're on the far side, you don't see the Earth. Why is that such a good thing if you're on the far side? Well, if you want to study radio waves from the distant universe, then the Earth is a huge source of um, 
emission, television emission, cell phone emission, radar emission, all of this, which would give you a terrible background and distort any signal you, you would get by looking deep into the universe. So going to the far side is a wonderful place to do radio astronomy. And it's not very difficult with our current technology to build huge radio telescopes on the moon and we would want to do this by going to the far side and uh, one could do much of this construction by bringing some material from the earth and perhaps constructing much of it locally there and with this uh, we could look far into the universe because we'd be looking for radio waves uh, that have come from far, far in the past and have been, their wavelengths have been greatly stretched out by the expansion of the universe, which means we'd be looking at very, very low frequencies and we can only access these, again, really from the far side of the moon because on the Earth, um, our ionosphere and all the local radio noise would make it impossible. So that's uh, how the moon will take us um, to the beginning of the universe. We're able to look at these radio waves that were coming in space from f far before the first galaxies formed. We'll be studying our beginnings, basically. And that, that, that's a, a great motivation for um, exploring the moon and doing some science and astronomy when we get there. And it's not just exploring the origins of the universe that we can do uh, with uh, better access to radio waves uh, on the moon. You also talk about how it can benefit the study of life uh, in, in the universe and answer one of the you know largest questions we have, which is whether or not we're alone. So are we alone indeed? The, you know, people have made the argument that our Earth uh, is not very old compared to the age of the universe, really. We're about four and a half billion years old, but most stars around us are much older, maybe even twice as old. And this means that there are planets around all those stars, and we know that most stars have lots and lots of planets. Uh, we are, are older, far older than the Earth. Now, our civilization on the Earth is only, you know, in terms of um, modern technology, is only a few centuries old. Imagine a civilization that had thousands, millions of years to evolve. We can't even begin to dream of its power in terms of exploration, of knowledge, etc. Unless, of course, there's some chance it had destroyed itself along the way. Uh, that we don't know the risks of that really, how, how likely that is or not. We certainly have the power now on the earth to destroy civilization on the earth, um, for example, by um, nuclear wars, that sort of thing. But even, even if that catastrophe were to happen on some distant planet, uh, then, you know, life is very capable of rebirthing, really. And one could imagine after, again, it might take a long time, tens of thousands of years, but one has enormous amounts of time to, to redesign, to, to grow new technology, to even greater strengths than before. And one would hope that when cycles like that happen, knowledge is gained and one would avoid some of these terrible uh, catastrophes that might be uh, human-made 
that would have led to ecological disasters. Of course, there are natural catastrophes such as giant asteroids slamming into the planet and effectively uh, uh, destroying all life on the planet or the, the host star of the planet exploding and that would burn the planet to a cinder. Well, then you'd want to go to another planet further from the star. But so, so, but there are so many planets that we we surely would expect to find traces of life somewhere. Now, the problem is that because of all these potential catastrophes, and the the other thing I should mention is that we know we have no idea how difficult it is to begin life on a planet like the Earth. It might be a very rare and difficult thing to have done. We know it worked once, that's for sure, we're here. So the only uh, response to searching for life then is to have many, many targets. What you want to do is find planets, distant planets, that are near stars like the sun and don't have um, giant methane-rich atmospheres like Jupiter but have more oxygen-rich atmospheres like the Earth. That means they have to be at the right distance from the host planet, not too hot, not too cold. And we know already there must be vast numbers of these exoplanets, as we call them, billions of them in the universe. The trouble is most are very far away. So that brings us back to looking for them. And for that, we need huge telescopes because you just have to look farther and farther away, not just in our neighborhood a few light years away, but hundreds or thousands of light years to have a chance of picking up many, many potential life-bearing planets. And with luck, you know, a small number of these might have livable atmospheres uh, and seasons and uh, conditions that are conducive to life. And if we have enough of these planets, it's possible one might even find signs of life. So that is the hope. And it seems clear that only by building huge telescopes can you get there and we simply can't build them on the Earth. We could, in principle, do this in space, but it's incredibly expensive to imagine doing this in space, whereas the Moon is a whole different kettle of fish. We're going to the Moon. We're going to build telescopes there. It's part of our future strategy. The funding is there for some of this. It, it's, it's a logical thing to do, to build bigger and bigger telescopes on the Moon that will enable our search for distant life and... Um, and try to answer this question of, you know, are we alone in the universe? Now, there are some who argue that, you know, doing this is a, a waste of resources, that, that you, this is an argument that goes back to the 1960s, where, you know, why should we spend this money exploring things like the, you know, whether or not there's life in the universe, when we have to deal with life on our own planet. And yet you then, you in your book, you go on to explain how, Getting to the moon and 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 you know studying the moon and uh, for lack of a better word exploiting the moon is something that can benefit humanity that can actually aid our ability to uh, survive uh, you know into the future. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon that about about how the as you demonstrate that as you explain the investment in resources in getting to the moon will have a beneficial return for us here on this planet well first of all let's get this straight it really isn't expensive actually what is expensive is getting to the moon and developing infrastructures on the moon 
And that decision has been taken already. Uh, major space agencies, not just NASA, but also in China and Russia, are determined to do this. And there are commercial benefits too. And my argument is simply that for a tiny fraction of this cost of building the infrastructure on the moon, one could build giant telescopes. It would just be a few percent of the cost. And with that, one could do amazing science. Now, you may think, well, you know, that's still billions of dollars, most likely, uh, but it's a tiny fraction of the total. And if I look back at what we've done before in space, I can see that these amazing images which we obtained with the Hubble telescope, everyone has seen those. They're incredible things. They really are. Uh, they give us a, you know, a psychological lift when we look at them. Many people, they're things of beauty. Well, the cost of the Hubble telescope was just a few percent of the cost of the space shuttle, which took us to the space station and that as well. So we had this amazing project to build space shuttles, now over, and the space station still ongoing. And the telescopes were a tiny byproduct of that in terms of cost. And we did that because it was clear that, you know, one needed to go more than the commercial route uh, with the space station, but to do things that would uplift um, humanity. And the same thing is now true for the moon, even more so, I would say, because we have these huge commercial um, uh, targets, uh, which many nations are interested in. Uh, which we have yet to regulate, but we hopefully will achieve all of this for the moon. And by just devoting a tiny fraction of the cost of pursuing all of these and maybe even turning some of the profits in, into, in, into use for science, can we, will we be able to develop telescopes and so forth and do these amazing things? And this will be, I think, a great boost for us, for humanity, to answer these amazing questions, where have we come from? Are we alone in the universe? I think we've never posed such important questions uh, until recently. We've begun to realize, you know, the last century, how what a small part of the universe we are. We want to know more. We want to understand more about where we came from. And I think we can best do this by building structures, telescope-like structures on the moon as a small part of our lunar adventure. So that's, that I see as an immensely valuable contribution to humanity, just as, you know, poetry is or literature is. You know, we're, we're not going to ban those for human activity because we'll say, oh, it's much more important to, you know, to, to manufacture shoes or something. We, we have to do other things. We do do other things. And it's important for our, you know, for our vision of the future, for our psychology, for our philosophy, for many things. And to me, the moon offers a, a similar vision, a similar vision for the future. And it's not just a vision that is necessarily abstract or long term. You conclude your book by talking about how the effort to get to the moon might aid us in this planet by contributing to international collaboration. I was wondering if you could perhaps talk about that process, you, kind of how it is that, that you know, how we're trying to arbitrate the competition to get to the moon now, and also with how you see us benefiting from, you know, that joint effort or that competitive effort going forward in terms of how that affects us here on this planet. Well, the, the, the one issue that we have that's driving much of this exploration of the moon 
other commercial benefits to be had. What we're already doing and planning, and many countries are involved in this, is surveying the moon for deposits of rare earths, because we know they're going to be incredibly important in the future um, as they run out on the earth for all of our, you know, our television uh, screens, our scanners, our our um, energy-producing devices such as windmills, etc. All of this stuff re- relies on having critical contributions from uh, rare earth elements. So all of this is, is clear that we need to uh, uh, look for our resources uh, that will come from the moon. So I see that as the major upside, and that will benefit us greatly. But the danger is the following that right now there are just perhaps two or three space agencies that have the, the power, the ability to send large spacecraft to the moon. Um, the US is ahead at the moment uh, with the recent launch of uh, NASA's uh, large uh, replacement for Saturn V of the Apollo era. Now, the worry I have is that Will it be first come, first served on the moon? Will the first uh, humans to land on the moon stake out territory? Uh, Will they lay claim? Uh, And then the others will come in, other countries may come in later and dispute those claims. Will exploration of the moon be a return to the Wild West? I really hope not. That would be terrible if that were to happen. And we need international collaboration. Now, this can work. It did work for exploration of the Antarctic. We have an Antarctic treaty that really does control commercial activity and um, mining activity, all sorts of things at the South Pole. That seems to have worked. But frankly, for the Antarctica, that's small. The, the, the commercial gains there are, are tiny compared to what is available, will be potentially available on the moon. So the gains are much, much higher potentially, and it's going to be correspondingly harder to reach international accords. Now, fortunately, um, uh, there is one outer space treaty that was passed the United Nations um, some decades ago with more than 100 signatories to it. And that does lay down some very interesting uh, rules that these countries signed up to. One of them is no military activity on the moon. Another one is no pollution on the moon um, and so on. Uh, The problem is, although many countries signed, but not all yet, we have to revisit this, there is no obvious means of enforcement of this treaty. What if there are crimes on the moon? How how do you control that? What if there are territorial disputes? What if someone says, I want this patch, um, and I'm going to take it from you because it has a certain rare earth I need for critical reasons back on the earth, you know, to make some medical instrument that made critical for saving thousands of lives. I'm gonna, I, I have a better claim to this than you. So how do we enforce this? Well, uh, I really don't know at the moment. Uh, we are talking now of, of having police forces on the moon. Um, again, perhaps um, the NASA and the US have announced something along these lines already. Um, other countries, I'm sure, will not be far behind. So we have to be optimistic and hope that um, 
long before we get to the serious commercial exploitation stage on the moon, will come to an enforceable international agreement that will um, divide the moon up, um, areas of the moon that different countries need in a way that's um, peaceful and legal and um, controllable. I, I hope that happens. I, I think it will happen because we're beginning to realize with all the discussion of global warming, what mistakes we've previously made on the earth. I don't think we want to repeat those on the moon. So let's hope that uh, we come to our senses and, and develop a legal framework for lunar exploitation. We appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? So my current interests are, are what is the uh, the dark matter in the universe. So it, it's a it's a very bizarre fact, but something like ninety five percent of the universe, all the stuff in the universe, is invisible. I mean, we see lots of stars, obviously, and with radio telescopes we can see gas clouds. So all this stuff we see in the universe, um, we see. Uh, even what we call nebulae, hot nebulae emitting X-rays and ultraviolet light. Amazing things are seen in, in, our, big, in our space telescopes. But 95% is missing. Now, we know this uh, because we can use the motions of the stars to test gravity locally in different places in the galaxy, other galaxies. And we just realize that 95% simply is not accounted for by the stars we see. So what is that stuff? So I'm working on trying to elucidate uh, what this dark matter might be. And I should say that um, right now we have a couple of candidates, but it's a little bit like, you know, looking in the dark when you've lost your car keys. Where do you look? Well, you go to the nearest streetlight, okay, and look around there because maybe you dropped them when you were walking home. Uh, elsewhere, it's impossible. It's a bit like that, unfortunately, with the dark matter. We have some favorite candidates for what the dark matter might be. But right now, uh, we can test for those, but there are so many other possibilities. Uh, we're very good, actually, we scientists at inventing new ideas that could be possible great candidates for dark matter. And then we think of ways to test them. They turn out to be very difficult. and They will happen someday, no doubt, but in many years' time. So it's a never-ending process, searching for the dark matter, a key component of the universe. And that is what's keeping me busy at the moment, to think of um, you know, exotic candidates for the dark matter, which so far we simply haven't found, despite intense searches for the past two decades, building bigger and bigger machines that look, are designed to look for invisible matter, because even this invisible matter has very feeble interactions with no matter. It should occasionally glow in the dark if I have enough material to, to search for it uh, and put it deep underground where it's very dark and very clean and shielded from cosmic rays. That's the sort of thing we're doing. But so far, nothing. We have to continue looking because it's one of our greatest problems in, in astronomy to find the dominant component of mass in the universe. Well, I, I wish you the best of luck, uh, of luck in terms of uh, finding the answer to that question. It sounds like an enormous question or one that uh, it definitely is, you know, hopefully we can find an answer to someday. I really hope so. And I'm confident we'll get one eventually. But whether it's in 10 years or 50 years, we simply can't say at the moment. 
Well, thank you very much for taking some time to speak with us, Joe. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much, Mark.